Good morning, folks. Good to see all of you today. I want to spend some time just working through some values and experiences in ministry that I just happen to be a little passionate about. Uh, there is a disclaimer that always ought to happen. Whenever a leader stands in front of someone and talks about leadership, it has kind of an unidentified, well, I've got it all together. Okay? And none of us do, do we? Absolutely none of us have it all together. But there are principles. Now, there is an unofficial theology of calling in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Anybody know what that is? Basically, hey, Drew, basically, if, uh, if you want something, you shouldn't have it. All right? If you want position, you ought to be passed over for somebody else. Because after all, isn't there some legitimacy in that in Scripture? God consistently called people who were reluctant leaders. But that can also lead us to the concept that if we're called to ministry, we just need to sit back and let God somehow do whatever he's going to do with our engagement in developing as a stronger leader. And so our unofficial calling theology needs to stay in place, but it should not inhibit the development of quality leadership. Now, I'm going to go to a list of basic leadership qualities. And just for your, and by the way, I am going to cram a whole lot of stuff in here, and I'm going to give you my email at the end of this in case you would like to pick up some points. And I'll be happy to send the PowerPoint presentation to you in case you want to go back and review some things. And I'll be happy to talk through, through some things with you also if we want to ever, ever get on the phone and talk some things through. So the list that I'm going to present is, and I'm going to, I'm going to qualify where I got this list, I, I got this list from watching my wife, Barbara, be a principal. All right. One of the most successful principals uh, that the church has ever had, and just simply watching what she did and how she did it and formulating what I was seeing has helped to develop a communication and a value system of what leadership is about. So eight basics of highly functional leadership. And what I learned a few years ago being involved in the election of the president of the Adventist Health System, and we went through, Gary Thurber and I went through an extensive process uh, along with a group of people. And Gary, I walked away from that process with the one word that really struck highly in my mind, that was capacity. Capacity in certain areas. Now, do any of you know anybody who is high capacity in all eight of these areas. It's pretty rare, isn't it? We tend to be overloaded with details and not so much on people and this, that, and the other thing. And that is the human condition. Nobody is perfect. And we all know as conference administrators, when you go into a church, there is a desire to get Angel Gabriel, who has every one of these competencies at a high, high level. But the simple reality is that none of us have all of these at the same time in high, high capacity, except maybe Barbara. And so I'm going to take, take a few minutes to talk about the basics. Those who do the basics, and this list is basic, those who do the basics are ahead of everybody else. That's just a simple reality. If you have a good, strong capacity in these areas, you're going to be ahead. Now, that's not a competition, and that's kind of a bad way to say it. 
but competencies are very, very important. Now, as a conference administrator who has observed, and a union administrator who has observed a lot of pastors, I mean a lot of pastors, it's my observation that the most successful pastors had at least these two competencies, spiritual depth and character, and the ability to connect with people. They may have other strengths, and they may have other weaknesses, but those are the two that I have consistently seen for those who are highly effective in ministry. Now, here are some quick descriptors of these, um, of these areas. First of all, a spiritual leader with depth must have God as a priority and you and I, all of us know that the pull away from that priority, the priority of God, the pull on time and all kinds of different issues is consistent and it's strong and it goes on and on and on. But making God the priority, setting self aside. You know what the, the seduction of leadership is? It's just the opposite of that. It's selfishness. It's putting self ahead. After all, didn't sin originate in the heart of a leader? Lucifer. And it's been continuing ever since. Pride is such a huge and major issue. And the seduction as leaders, you're a leader if you have influence over at least one other person. So everybody in the room is a leader. Some of you have larger churches, some smaller churches, some of you have wide responsibilities and others not so wide, but the simple reality is everybody is a leader and everybody is subject to being seduced by the ramifications of leadership. And that line can be very, very thin. I remember one day signing birthday cards to the pastors. Little note to the pastor, birthday card. And I sat back in my chair and I said, why did I just write what I wrote? Was it to upbuild, to build up the pastor, to give them some strength, or was it to make me look good in their eyes? And those words can be very small changes and nuances, but nonetheless, it's a thin line that when it is stepped over, we need to check ourselves to step back over on the other side. Character. Character is the willingness and ability to do the right thing, even at personal cost. Can, when the gale is blowing and the winds are ravaging all around us and the people are doing the things they do, especially today in our society, do we have the character to stand in the gap when the gale is blowing and do the right thing, even at personal cost? Spiritually effective communication. That's preaching. It's communication one-to-one, -one. it's Bible studies, it's connecting with someone who just needs to be uplifted. 
But over and over again, I see pastors who have that skill and ability being effective where they are with that important reality of communication. Priority of leading God's people uh, to God and not self. And the last bullet, intercessor. Of all the words that you might want to use to describe Moses, wouldn't that be one of the top descriptors of who, in my opinion, is the second greatest leader in scripture, second to Jesus only. Moses was absolutely incredible, and yet he was an intercessor, and spiritual leadership contains that reality of interceding. In fact, I believe it's one of the highest spiritual callings that there is. Do we believe in intercession? Do we really believe in it? Bob Falkenberg Jr. came to uh, the Oregon Conference a few years ago and he told a story about an evangelist who went to the British Columbia Conference uh, years and years ago, pitched a tent, and had a series of meetings, and they baptized 15, 16 people somewhere in there. So they, they felt good about that. First Sabbath, the new members were attending the church, and uh, and there was a man who was a brand new member, who a lady who was a member, and she engaged him in a, in a welcome and connecting with him. And uh, so she said, what is your name? And he told her his name. And she said, oh, I've been praying for you. He said, how could that be? We just met. He said, well, when I, she said, when I found out that the evangelistic meetings were coming to town, I went to the phone book. You, you remember those, don't you? Or some of you aren't maybe not old enough to remember phone books. But I went to the phone book, and I picked out a block of names that I began to pray for. Amen. And I think it was about seven or eight of the 15 baptisms were in that block of names. So folks, leaders who are spiritually connected with God must intercede for our kids, for our families, for our church members. And so that's an important point. I spent way too much time on this first one here. All right. People skills. Friendliness is pretty obvious. All right? Friendliness is pretty obvious. But it must be more than being friendly. In fact, last night, Barbara read a little series of things. It, it means empathy. It means caring for people. It means going out of your way to do things for people. That is more than just being friendly, isn't it? We all have been around friendly people. And in fact, sometimes we think that people skills should mean that you're a super connector. And folks, there just aren't that many super connectors around. Paul Revere was a super connector. Two people made the ride that night to warn of the British, but Paul Revere knew everybody, and his was more effective. Ron Whitehead is a super connector. I mean, he's like a super ball in a vacuum changer chamber with people. I mean, Ron is amazing. But most of us are not super connectors. But we must be at least intentional connectors with people you look them in the eye and you smile and you let them know that you're there and you care for them. A heart for people, generous, gracious. And this is a Gary Thurber phrase, a non-anxious presence. Gary epitomizes that. 
non-anxious presence, puts people at ease, and oh my goodness, don't be edgy. Because edgy says all kinds of things about ourselves. Communication. Tell people what they need to know. Try to answer their questions before they ask them because that is being considerate of people. You can be a people person but not communicate, but when you don't communicate, you put them in a place where you haven't been considerate of them. And there are lots of things that we can put out there that are important, but one of the, one of the strangest things is that every group of people has unstated rules. How about the Adventists coming in, non-Adventists, that well, I like to call them pre-Adventists, Pat. The pre-Adventists who come into your church, are they listening to our acronyms and wondering what in the world are we talking about? Are they not understanding haystacks? There are so many things that we can be careful to answer those questions. Now, the next bullet, comprehensive while succinct. Once you've got it done, folks, shut up. All right? I was at a prayer at Andrews University. I mean, at a, at a baccalaureate. I was preaching at an Andrews University. And some dear old brother had the prayer of the morning. And he didn't understand brevity or succinct. He came in for a landing about five times and couldn't get it landed. And finally, when he got done, all the graduates said, Amen. Because he'd worn out the saints. So comprehensive while succinct. Answer questions before they're asked. Cover that. Genius is taking the complex and making it simple. And we've all been around people, especially in academia, who can take the simple and make it complex instead of the complex and make it simple. Did I get that reversed the first time? So making the complex simple and the ability to communicate in ways that people will buy in and follow. Quick, a quick illustration. My journey on racial issues progressed mainly because there were people who would speak to me in ways that I could understand. And it really made a difference. And it blessed me. And it made a difference in other people's lives, too. Vision. So what's the definition of vision? The ability to see, right? Vision is the ability to see what is and what should be. Peripheral vision, oftentimes we think of vision as this long-term thing uh, that I can figure out what ought to be in five years in my church or someone at Lee Iacocca when he took over Chrysler and saved Chrysler, long-term vision took it all the way but folks, most vision that is needed is not long-term, but long-term is important. Most vision is seeing what is right under your nose. People who are hurting, functional things in the church that aren't functional, people being in the right place, on the bus, 
the driver's seat, all of those things, and lots of people can trip over the obvious and never see it. And leadership must include being able to see what is right in front of us. A deliberate defining of God's vision that made your ministry, uh, for your area of ministry, and formalizing the vision to be articulated to others. If you would take a moment, maybe you have, many of the things that you do are intuitive. You just do them, all right? They come natural to you. You've had experience doing them. They're intuitive. They've worked. And you just kind of continue doing those things all the time because they work very, very well. But intuitive is not enough. It's important from time to time. One of the rules of, of using heavy equipment is once in a while, get off the tractor and see if there's anything falling off, all right? Stand back and see what's working articulate it in your heart and mind, even write it out, because when you do that, it allows you to do those things better, and it also allows you to communicate them to other people. Therefore, your leadership expands, and the values that you know are true can be carried further. Now, this is an eye chart, and you're going to have a hard time seeing this, but uh, some years ago, um, Gary, we were at Adventist Health, and now it's Advent Health now, but then it was Adventist Health System uh, corporate board meeting. Terry Shaw, now the president of Advent Health, then was the CFO, brought about a 10-page to-do list for the next year. And he said, these are the things we need to get done. I looked through that thing and I said, man, this is amazing. I don't have a list like that. And I thought, this is worth doing. And so I went home and I developed this simple mechanism, areas of focus. This is the vision area. These are the descriptors and the details, and they need to be different. Your vision should always be bigger than what you should accomplish. You can accomplish. All right? If your vision is smaller than what you can accomplish, then you, you're, you need to lift your eyes into something that is bigger and, and more important. So we uh, took some time in our uh, administrative team there in the Lake Union, and we said leadership development is a high level of vision for us. We need to spend time in that because this is something we need to do. And so we had different kinds of things going on. Another thing that we worked on is facilitating progress toward racial national understanding and missional function. We have too much of us working separately. We must work together. I'm not talking about getting rid of conferences, but it doesn't mean that the churches in the same community shouldn't be working together just because they belong to different conferences. And when we get together and when we pray together, we do better mission, right? So this is something that, and every year, I would put a smiley face or a yellow, uh, that was, this was, we kind of are working on it, and sometimes put a red one with a frowny face. Every year, I would check myself to see, and the vision was much more than this. I'm just giving you a, an example here of a couple of items that were on and in that vision. So, pastors, is that something you can do too? 
because we tend to do leadership and function by the calendar. This quarter's coming up, this week's coming up, this sermon's coming up. And God has not called us to tread water. He has called us to have vision and to organize that vision and to hold ourselves accountable. I took, and this is just an example of some things you might want to put in your vision. I took my vision grid that I did for myself. I took it to the union executive committee every year for review. And I showed them what we had succeeded in, what we were working on, and what we had not yet succeeded in. It's called accountability. And I would suggest to all of us that accountability is the weakest link in the church. Sometimes I hear somebody getting fired and there's a bit of an uproar. Do you know how hard it is to get fired from the Adventist church? I mean, I have seen a lot of dysfunctional people just continue on and on and on. But the simple reality is that accountability must be a higher level. How many of you, I'm going to ask a hard question, how many of you are doing evaluations of your ministry with your church? Good for you. How many of you are being evaluated by your church? Everyone. Every one of us is being evaluated. Every week, all the time, it isn't just Sabbath, uh, supper, I mean lunch, you know, that the evaluation stay. It is happening. Wouldn't you rather know what people are thinking than be guessing? The greatest fear you and I should have in leadership is what we don't know. Because if you know, you have a chance to do something about it. In Georgia Carmelo and Gordon Beats was the president. We not only did an evaluation just before constituency meeting, we did one midterm because he said, after all, you have time to work on the stuff you need to work on if you know about it early enough. So we have a little administrative phrase. That's a concept to be able to do those things. Okay, so hopefully this, folks, if your ministry doesn't have direction, it may be because you're not stepping back. Glenda Geary is here. He's my pastor. One of his visions is mission. And so we happen to have some things here. A three-year goal cycle, a goal of 100 Bible studies in a year. Bible study training, connecting events, outreach, evangelistic married, and new member connecting, and then start all over again. Now, that's a vision that he has articulated to us. I stuck it up here because that's a vision worth having. So I'm going to keep running here. Oh, my, we're getting. Number five, problem solving. The ability to address a need. Anybody here? Know what a belt sander is? We love belt sanders. But a belt sander is a sanding machine that can ruin a piece of work in seconds. 
problem solving is using the right tools on the right issue so that you can get the job done. Develop appropriate approaches and processes to meet a need. Now, I, I think of myself as a problem solver. And two or three of you who have sat with me in a meeting where we were working on an issue have probably observed that I can quickly come up with three or four options to solve a problem. I, I can just do that. And occasionally one of them is a good one. All right? And so problem solving includes narrowing down to the best and appropriate process to make things work. A problem caused by one or few individuals may not need a policy but personal addressing. How thick is our uh, NAD, our General Conference policy book? It's about that thick. And we tend in leadership, if one person is being dysfunctional, to make a policy to try to cover that, and we put it on everybody else who don't have a problem, and therefore everybody gets involved in what only one or two people should be involved in. Because we are afraid to simply go and confront the issue that is at hand. Problems affecting numerous people should be solved with input from multiple people. It goes back, Gary, and you saw it happen many times. I would throw two or three ideas out and we would banter around and sooner or later we would come together with a conclusion of what the right thing was. Because, and I have this later, multiple heads are always better than mine. Okay. This is an important phrase. Do things with and for people and not to people. Have you ever done something to someone instead of finding out what they needed and what would help them function better and coming alongside instead of pushing and shoving and doing what we so often do? Continued. Engage others. Almost everyone's head has said this is better than mine. Uh, understand the linear implications of any decision, immediate and long-term. It is imperative that we take the time to see if we do this, what will it mean in one week, two weeks, two months, two years, 20 years. Communicate. Is it good enough just to fix a problem? Communicate what the fix is. Minimize surprises and maximize new function. Okay, so problem solving has a lot going on for it. Organization, the ability to keep numerous things functioning. How many of you know somebody who was a true multitasker? And here's my definition of a multitasker. The ability to do one, uh, two or more things at the same time. I don't think I know hardly anybody. Des Cummings Jr. comes the closest. I've seen him carry on conversations with two people at the same time. Okay. 
But very few, if anybody, is truly a multitasker. What we really need are people who can do numerous things in the same time frame and keep track of those things. Follow through. So we're trying to get a plumber to fix something. And he says, yeah, I'll be there. When? Well, I don't know. Maybe Tuesday. And he doesn't show up Tuesday. Hence, say what you'll do, do what you say, and let people know if it changes. Now, that's really a complicated concept. But over and over and over again, I have failed and others have failed to do those simple things. Get things done. A flowchart is not enough. I have seen people who could put out the most incredible flowchart and they couldn't get a thing done. And they dumped it on other people and there were issues that took place. And so organization goes beyond that. Do the above things so that others can understand and participate. Minimize loose ends. The rule of 90%. If you really work on the details, you'll never get 100% of them right, will you? It, it just won't happen. But if you get 90% of them done, you can flex and flow what, com what comes up that you didn't see. So get those. Don't be a person that people want to provide a t-shirt to you that has a picture of an octopus and it says, more loose ends than an octopus. That's not good leadership. Okay. Being detailed. I know some perfectionists. Minute detail who are not organized. Detail and organization can and often go together, but don't automatically go together. If you've got your head in the weeds too long, you'll miss what all needs to happen to bring about clear and good organizations. The last bullet. I'm going to ask you this question, and I'm going to ask for a little feedback. What do some of you use to keep yourself organized? Calendar. Yes. yes. What else? Post-it notes. Post notes. All right. Good. Boom, boom, boom. You got them there. You can peel them off, change them. Yes. What else? To-do list. To list. Now, to-do list is a concept. <laughs> a to-do list. Anything else? I think we pretty well covered the basics. Reminder. Reminder. Okay. And there are some. Uh, there are some good tools that Microsoft and others have. That now the danger is that we take so much time staying organized, we don't get things done. So make sure your organizational tools are simple enough. When I was working full time, I had a desktop icon, boom, it was to-do list. I could get into it immediately and, and keep track of it. So make sure you figure out what, and if you're not a detailed person, surround yourselves with people who can come, but respect them Respect them, don't dump on them. Okay, and we've all seen people who didn't have all of the detail skills and organizational skills who had people around them. I saw a Pathfinder director once at an investiture. He was just making everybody feel good and everything, and one of his assistants was off. What do we do next? Here, then she fed it to him.
and off you go. So make sure that that balance is in place. Work ethic. Effective leaders are not lazy. Period. It takes a lot of work to be an effective leader. All leaders should have balance. Some of you may remember Dale Tunnell, senior. Worked in Georgia Cumberland, later on at the Texaco Conference. I still remember Dale talking about his two boys. He worked so many evenings a week, but when they got off of school, he would be there and he would play with them for a good quality of time. And those boys knew their dad cared for them. All right. So there are ways that we can manage the busyness. Consistent overwork exposes personal issues. And I, I offer that reality to each of us that if we're getting caught, we need to step back. When I was 33, it took a round of cancer for me to readjust. Can't you were there. And after that, wasn't perfect, but there was a significant readjustment. There was vacations that took place with family. There were, there were better times, so that is important. You know, we rarely hire for judgment, but we should. Judgment is, as, as I have worked through the years on personnel issues, invariably judgment was an issue, and interestingly enough, it was rarely talked about in that specific of terms. But it was always referenced in other terms. The ability to know and do the right thing, and some of you who know me, here we go, in the right way, at the right time, and for the right reason. The next issue, prioritizing your time. Anybody struggle with that? Still remember Lee Iacocca's book, read it years ago. He said every Sunday night before the week began, he would sit down and he would carefully go through what needed to happen that week so that he had a direction. He had a to-do list. He had priorities set for that time frame. And leaders, it is imperative to consistently step back and check the to-do list, make sure it's up to date, and, and prioritize the things that need to do. And our judgment is built on two values, on values. Judgment is built on, the va on values that we have, and it's built on experience. Does that make sense? Now, there are some who have said you can't change a person if they have bad judgment. But this suggests that you can. So I heard this, I heard this uh, expressed years ago at a, at a president's meeting, and I went back, and I was bantering with our education guys. And they were great leaders. And I said, eh, that's, not a, that's not the whole thing. There's more to it than that. And so the longer we talked, another factor entered into that equation, emotional health. Haven't we all seen people who had great experience and they really had great values do dumb things over and over again because the lack of emotional health 
will trump the first two over and over again. And if you find yourself exercising poor judgment, we may want to ask the question, why is that happening? All right, now, here I go on my four, my four favorites. So Glenn, Glenn gets to hear this uh, all the time. So sorry, Glenn. <laughs> Do the right thing in the right way at the right time and for the right reason. Does that make sense? Okay, so it's not enough though just to do the right thing. Legalism focuses on detail and it ignores principles and ignores principles and values. You ever seen that happen? Oh boy, oh, we all have, we've done it and we've certainly seen it happen. They go to the smallest detail and just completely miss the big picture issues that are at hand. And if a leader does not focus on all four rights, spiritual outcomes are unlikely. I'm going, to, I'm going to focus on the spiritual outcomes in a bit. Some of the greatest sins and atrocities in this earth's history have been perpetuated by those who thought they were doing the right thing. Those of us who have a Oregon Conference uh, background uh, love Clarence Schilt. And this is one of his favorite quotes. We do some of our greatest sinning when we are right. Remember that, Pat and Tammy? Mercy. Some of our greatest sinning when we are right. So people who are right can be dangerous. Mercy. Defining the right thing. Scriptural principles has got to drive our right and wrong. Knowing the right from wrong. Having the courage to address evil and dysfunction. I saw a pastor in the last few years deal with something carefully, systematically, and gently that had been left undone for many pastors before because there was simply courage and the willingness to move forward. Now I'm going to take a minute on this, making sure the sacred stays sacred. Heard a radio talk show host, I was driving back to Berrien Springs from Chicago here, hate that drive, and uh, it was late at night, and I don't, uh, rarely do you hear anything on the radio that's worth repeating, but this guy spoke of a politician who was using profanity in public and he said, this, this shouldn't be done. And I'm not talking about Trump. It was before Trump, okay? <laughs> and he said, this, this is something, uh, and he, he was over drinking in public. And he said, so he was using sacred language in a profane way. And then here's what he said. When you allow the profane to become common, the common moves into the profane. I, mean, I think I said that wrong. When you allow the sacred, when you allow the sacred to become common, then the common can become profane and often does. So are we handlers in ministry of the sacred? 
What about God's resources? Do you ever add a few miles onto your mileage report? Overcharge something that shouldn't be charged? God's resources are sacred. How about your calling? Drew, we've talked about calling. All right? So you know what calling is. Everybody here knows what calling is. I'm going to ask a hard question. When we look back to our original time of feeling the call of God, is it still as sacred now as it was then? Because if it has become common, and it's a natural tendency, isn't it? If it has become common, it will become profane. Important, important things. Double checking here. Oh, I think we're going to make it. Are God's people sacred? Moses had the worst church in the worst district, in the worst conference, in the worst union, in the worst division. And yet to him, the people of God were sacred. Even the dirty dogs. We have a car wash in Calhoun, Georgia, dirty dog car wash. And I said, I think I know someone who had part ownership in that. <laughs> All right. Even the dirty dogs are sacred because we all know they all have a story too, don't they? That took them to that point. And certainly the mission. Years ago, I heard George Knight railing on how we as a church have tended to become more institution than missional. And I just want to tell you folks that one of the greatest joys that Barbara and I have had in ministry, and all of it has been incredible. We have enjoyed every bit. But now in retirement, we are in a local church and we are loving being engaged in the mission of the local church because that's where it's at. Okay, so the mission is important live and work with integrity and bring honor to God and his cause. Now, the right thing and the right reason are really separate in a lot of ways, but you really can't separate them hardly when you figure out what the right thing is because the right reason is so closely tied. So I'm taking the first one and the fourth one and I'm putting them together here, both right both the right thing and the right reason are closely tied together. Actions come from values and motives. Good actions driven by appropriate motives result in the right thing. Honoring God and taking the high road, the principle of the mantle. We all know the story. Elijah is transitioning to Elisha. And what does he give him? The mantle, the mantle passes to Elisha. When you and I are called for ministry, we receive a mantle. 
And one of the main things that we need to understand is that the mantle amplifies everything we do. If we do something good for somebody, our mantle amplifies it. I remember writing a letter to, uh, as a union president, to uh, a, oh, it was conference president, to a lady who was doing community service in the church. The pastor told me uh, that, hey, she's doing a good job. I wrote a little letter to her. That letter was amplified way beyond. Now, you don't have to be a conference president for mantle amplification. And when we do wrong, the mantle amplifies it. And the mantle amplifies the wrong in such a way that spiritual damage is done. Now, folks, spiritual damage is a huge thing. Now, ladies, some of you are here because you are full-time pastors. Some of you may be here because you're pastor's wives. I want us to talk to the pastor's wives, and gentlemen, listen carefully. A lady who had done a lot of counseling with pastors said to a colleague and I once that I'm seeing too many of the pastor's wives from your conference not understand that they have a calling and not just being the pastor's wife. I said, that's huge. Ladies and gentlemen who are spouses, God is calling each of us, whether we have the title or not, whether we have the title or not, into ministry and to mantle wearing. We understand that. In fact, I think the discussion on ordination is completely misplaced. It is not about ordination. It is about who is called by God for spiritual leadership and equipped by God for spiritual leadership. And so key, key things. All right. I got off on a, I got off on a tangent here. Now, we're getting a little bit into conflict management. Bad actions of others never justify one of us taking the low road. Someone curses at you, is it ever, is it ever appropriate to respond back in anger and inappropriately? Remember what the mantle, some um, uh, objective uh, operative values, respect, Honesty, seeking the right outcome, transparency, altruism, follow-through. All of those are very, very important. The last one, don't manipulate. If you have a decision in the church to make or even in the larger church to make and you manipulate in any way, you are making a clear statement, you don't trust God. Bring the information. Bring the appropriate discussion, bring prayer, bring the seeking of God, and let God's people be led by God to make the right decisions. In all of the years of ministry, I have rarely seen God's people make the wrong decision. I've seen it, but it's been rare. And it's very, very, trusting in God is important. Understand true godly authority. All right, so we use the word authority. Give me some, uh, give me some synonyms of what authority means. 
Power. What else? Influence. Influence. Good. Responsibility. Responsibility. Now, oftentimes, if you use the word authoritarian, you think of the power over, and you think of someone, well, we can think of leaders around the world. They're creating great damage in there. But there's a, there's a book uh, with a title, Authority, written by Kennedy and, oh, I can't remember the other name, two people. And quite frankly, it's a hard read. But here's the main concept. The word authority comes from the Latin word augur, which really means to develop, to nurture, to bring into being, to coach, to bring about. And so the simple reality is that godly authority who has all the power has authored the plan of salvation. Love never forces. Love always does the things to bring people to where they need to be. And so we should author our church members. We should author our employees. We should author our children. We should author our spouses. After all, doesn't Hebrews say that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith? And when we use power over, we are countering the core principles of the great controversy. We are going over to the dark side of the great controversy and not to the light side. Now, the power of apology. Former North American Division President, uh, Don Schneider, came to Northern California, North American Division, came to Northern California, and one of the first things he did was put a ad in the Paradise Gazette. Anybody heard of Paradise, the, the town that burned? Well, that was later. <laughs> he came and put this ad in the paper. I'm the new president of the Northern California Conference. I would like to meet with all of the former church members uh, in the area. And so a group of 15, 20 people showed up Sabbath afternoon, Paradise Church, sat around the circle, and he asked them one by one, please tell me your story. And over and over again, Don would look him in the eye and said, this is what I heard you say that went wrong, and I'm so sorry. As the president of this conference, I apologize to you. He moves to uh, the Lake Union. He was a two or three presidents before me. He heard about a lady who'd been out of the church for 15, 20 years, sister of uh, one of the workers there. She'd uh, been in nursing school and had gone to a movie on Sabbath and bought something in a store, and they kicked her out of school. And Don wrote her a letter of apology. And he laid out the things that was on his heart, and he said, I'm looking forward to visiting with you soon so that I might personally, face-to-face, -face, apologize to you for what happened. She got the letter. She read it. She went back to church. She proclaimed her love for the Lord. And two weeks later, she died. Oh, wow. 
Now, I just want you to ruminate on that for a moment. What did it cost Don to offer that apology? And it's been a driving factor for me as I have seen him do that. That example has, has, has blessed our ministry of apologize to women for the abuse that someone did to them in the church. And I've seen the power of healing. One said, I've known I was okay for all these years, but just hearing the words helps me know it wasn't my fault. Gary and I were a part of an apology to an entire conference for things that had gone wrong at the church. And the healing that took place was powerful. And so there is great, great power in apology. We must acknowledge when things go wrong, define the mistake and own it, and not deflect. Some wrong reasons. Self-advancement. Self-protection. We've talked about the seduction of leadership. Got ahead of myself. The attempting to be in control. Folks, we must monitor ourselves and say, am I doing what I'm doing for the right reason? Now, all of us have been in complex scenarios. And all of us have dealt with some people who are incredibly unhealthy. And I'll bet you would agree with me as I look back at all the different conflicts I have seen in my life, in ministry, in the church, almost every one of them was about power and control. <laughs> it was just typical. So I want to take a couple minutes with this. Manipulation. Have you ever seen someone use the martyrdom factor? Oh, everybody's against me and it's all going wrong. That is a manipulation by a controller. Not respectful of other people and their boundaries. Rejecting counsel, inconsistent standards for self versus others. Overreacts at an inappropriate level. That means, Kent, if we were at camp years ago and you left the campfire lights on and I just reamed you out instead of just saying, you know, Kent, the lights are on, let's make sure we get that. But I, I spent five minutes degrading you. Would that be an appropriate level for the infraction? It would not. But it would reveal more about me if I did that to you. And I wouldn't be in the seminar. And you, might not be in the, and you wouldn't be in the seminar. So the reason I bring that up, and again, the same lady that talked to us about pastors' wives not understanding their calling said, uh, kind of laid that out. She said, you need to be able to identify when people are unhealthy because that helps you to stay objective instead of subjective. And when we go subjective, then we can't think clearly. It's just a simple reality. Misuse of inspired authority deflects, transfers blame to others, claims in, uh, in a complete process to avoid consequences. These are signs of a controller and I have actually shown this list to people who are in the middle of conflict and they say, oh yeah, every, almost every one of those behaviors is happening. So it's actually very predictable. This list was built on simple observations, no deep research. So appropriate use of this list to stay objective. 
when we are spiritually objective, seeking the right things, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna perform better. Understand who you're dealing. Does every dirty dog have a story? Does every dirty dog need the love of Jesus? Are we conduits of that? And sometimes, though, that means holding people accountable. An inappropriate use of this list is to be in control. I see what you're doing, to be in control. And so we do not want to go there. All right, we're closing down here, getting close. Matthew 18, here are some principles. Talk to people and not about people. I'm, uh, that's there for me, yep. Use inclusive words, not accusatory words. That might look like, you know, I just observed that exchange a few minutes ago and it seemed pretty intense to me. Tell me what's going on. Now that opens doors instead of closing doors. And instead of saying, your behavior was so out of line, I couldn't believe it. Can you see the difference? Very important. When you've heard half the story, what have you heard? Anybody gotten caught on that? Anybody heard half the story that sounded so relevant and appropriate that you bought into it? Only to learn there's another part of the story. Opportunity to clarify misunderstandings. Look at the word opportunity. It's not a trap, it's an opportunity to clarify misunderstandings and to take ownership where we are wrong. What percentage of ownership, what threshold do we need to take ownership? How low or how high? Is 2% too low to take ownership for something you did wrong? Certainly 90%. Anytime we can identify our problem in a process, our mistake, our wrong, own it because it's a teachable manner for other people, teachable moment. Being called out is an opportunity to communicate values and convictions. Oftentimes we think attacked, but when people attack you say, hey, it's actually an opportunity to bring some important teaching moments to our process. Proper use of authority, we've gone there already. Take the high road. The dysfunction of others is not an excuse. Remember the mantle. And at the right time, I think this is one of the hardest of the four rights, the timing. It can be very, very good. Now, would we agree <clears throat> if someone is being damaged, the timing is not to be delayed? Okay, if there's abuse, emotional, physical, whatever, folks, the timing is not debatable. <clears throat> but sometimes it is difficult and the principle of too soon and too late as a conference president, there were times when it was clear that one of our pastors needed, would be better in another district. It just wasn't working. Sometimes it was a pastor's fault. Sometimes it was a congregation's fault. Sometimes it just wasn't a good matchup, but it needed to happen. And Gary, oftentimes we saw those way earlier than we knew was the right time to take care of it. But we listen, 
for the right signals to help us know. And God brings those signals if we are really seeking him, interceding with him. Those signals come so that we can know what to do. If we do something too soon, it creates spiritual damage. If we wait too long, it can create unnecessary spiritual damage. So timing is very, very important. Spiritual outcomes. If there's anything I want you to take away from our time together today, it is the importance of spiritual outcomes. Is that what the great controversy is about? Think about the ministry of Jesus. Simon the leper at the feast, where the woman comes in and anoints Jesus. Jesus could have ruined Simon spiritually and in other ways because he knew what the real story was. But Jesus did the right spiritual thing and Simon became a true follower. He did the right thing for the woman and she was affirmed and became an even better follower. He did the right thing for Judas and Judas didn't, didn't take it. And so folks, you can't get them all. But the goal needs to be the right spiritual outcome. Um, keep that in mind. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on it. We're getting close to closing time here. And for the right reason, if something goes wrong, I'm going back to the right reason. If something goes wrong, do a post-mortem on yourself. Why did I say what I said? What drove those words? What drove my attitude? Was it the right thing and the right reason? And so that can be not only a lead-in, but a post-mortem to what we should be doing in our lives.